You know, one of the most exciting things about working with Gun.io is I get to work with some of the most important consumer brands and fitness brands and enterprise brands. And what you find is that they're all looking for the very best talent and they're competing for it. And one thing I tell clients all the time is that, hey, you know, if you can develop um, the mindset to, to hire remote freelance engineers, what you're going to find is that it opens up the pool of available talent because you're not going to have to fight over the same group of FTEs from all the other companies in your space. And so now what we can do is bring you a cohort of people that other companies aren't competing with you against. And it's really a competitive advantage to take stock of that and find some excellent people you can bring on board. This is the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe and follow us on Twitter at the Frontier Pod. So who is Isaac Mosquera? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, first, I think the way that I would describe myself is really as um, someone who just loves technology. Um, I love to code. And for the longest time, I always thought I'd follow a engineering track um, and, you know, didn't really think about management very much. But I got to a point where, you know, I felt very comfortable in coding, doing code reviews, those kind of things. And uh, while I love the code, I, something fell off like where I didn't necessarily f uh, uh, was fulfilled. And I was always wondering what's next for me. And uh, at a certain point, a, a kind of a relatively, you know, I had a, probably a 10 person team kind of thrown on my lap to manage. And I asked them very, uh, you know, on the first day, it's like, give me, you know, on a scale of one to four, how happy are you? Because this is part of a, a new company. And I, I, uh, I asked them and, and mo most of them were one and two. They were very unhappy. And I started working through them, trying to understand why they were unhappy. And ultimately, over a period of time, I got them all to threes and fours. I didn't lose a single person on that team that was generally unhappy with the old manager that they had. And I, I was genuinely satisfied and fulfilled uh, uh, in making them happy, enabling them to do what they wanted to do and, and how they wanted to grow. And so while I love coding, I will always code and I will always be into technology uh, and, and the sciences. Uh, you know, who I am today is more around empowering other people to accomplish the things that they want to do hmm. um, and clearing a path for them, which is, uh, you know, so it's, it's a harder, different challenge. It's not a technical challenge. It's more in the social sciences, but um, that's who I am today. Hmm. How did you how did you know that you were perhaps unsatisfied with the day-to-day -day of you know writing code? Um, how did you know that you kind of needed to explore maybe other responsibilities? Yeah, so this is going to sound super like egotistical, but I guess what happened was I got to a point in my career where I felt like I, you know, I could generally solve most problems that were the technical problems that were kind of thrown at me. Right. I'm like, okay, if there's a database problem, I generally know how to solve it. Not that, uh, you know, I know everything, but I know the approach, right? And, and I would be able to solve it at some, at some point or another. Um, and that kind of took a little bit, um, I think, the fun out of it where it's like, you know, most technical problems are, are, are solvable. Most human problems, not most, uh, there's a lot of human problems are sometimes unsolvable. And, totally. there's no, and, and it's not like any single one person um, has the same solution for their, their problems. And that's something that I've learned and it, and it kind of keeps me on my feet. Whereas the same thing that I might do with you, uh, even though I work to solve this problem, somebody might have the exact same problem. It won't be the same solution. And uh, that's kind of when I, I realized like, why is it do I get fulfillment out of this? <clears throat> and it's just a much more harder difficult problem set, I guess, dealing with people than it is dealing with technology. Totally. Technology has a deterministic outcome, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are you familiar with 
Peter Drucker, who's like the OG of like management science, you know who he is? Uh, uh, absolutely. I used to say, uh, you know, you can't improve what you don't measure. And I used to say right. that so much that people attributed the quote to me. And I'm like, <laughs> not me. This is, this is a very famous person. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with him. That's awesome. Okay. Do you, so do you, then, do you then consider yourself now a businessman first or an engineer first? Or how would you even think about that? Uh, I, I always put myself down as an engineer mm. um, on my tax forms. I was just at the dentist the other day and it asked yeah. me for occupation. I just always put down engineer. It, there's something that I, I always want to be associated with this field. And like I said, I'm, I love technology. Mm. Um, so first and foremost, I am an engineer. And, cool. and I just so happen to be an engineering leader. Um, but it's still engineering at the end of the day. I still like to get sometimes into the weeds of the problems. Um, but you know, I try to empower my teams to solve those problems on their own first. Totally. So you studied um, systems engineering at George Mason. Did you pick up, um, so like George Mason is famous in economic circles for being like University of Chicago for having a very sort of, you know, um, traditionalist neoclassical economic view. Did you pick that up at all? You know, how do you feel about that? Uh, so first of all, I did pick up on it. In fact, when I was in college, uh, I did engineering because my father was an engineer and I was mm. like, do I really want to be an engineer? It took me a little while to realize like, yes, I do want to be an engineer. Right. And I, and I like to do math. And so I thought, well, here's a related field. And I did have to take some uh, economy classes. Um, now, the interesting thing about all of that was I took a lot of linear algebra and a lot of <clears throat> multivariate, um, uh, uh, I guess, problems courses. And, right. and it's very closely linked to operations research which is essentially the predecessor for machine learning. And one of the things that's really interesting from that was I left school and I didn't realize like how impactful and useful all this math and, and, and the courses I took would come back into play now that everything is AI. Right. Um, and so it's been, it's been very helpful. Uh, but I, you know, I, I didn't, you know, like, you know, I guess to answer your question, I, I almost went down that path. I had a little bit of influence on the, the economics path actually. Uh, one of my best friends in college was an economy major, and we worked a lot on some of the math problems, the more uh, math-oriented problems, but uh, got to stay away from it mostly and just stay technical. Totally, yeah. What, I mean, it's funny. One of my best friends actually works at the World Bank. He's an economist, and economists tend to always have, like, hard science envy. Like, they have, like, hard math, you know, science envy because they're trying to fit, you know, human beings into, like, real rigid mathematical models, which is, which is always fascinating. But, yeah, G George Mason's world famous, like, for that, um, for that lens. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Are you familiar with a guy, um, Russ Roberts? He's, uh, he's an economist. I think we actually interviewed him, um, but he's, he actually teaches at George Mason now. And he's like a, like a very big podcaster in the neoclassical economics uh, arena. So it might be worth checking out if you do like Russ podcast. Roberts. I'll have to yeah, 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 yeah. I think you'd like him. Um, so Russ Roberts, Tyler Cowen. Yeah, these are, these are interesting guys. Um, never okay. never yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you'd like them. Um, okay, so then, you know, uh, sort of getting in a little bit deeper. So, okay, what do you mean when you say uh, ship small diffs? At, yeah. Right, uh, sort of technically and maybe both um, generally. Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a great question. So when I technically, when we say ship small diffs, really what we're trying to do is introduce a small amount of change into this very complex system such that if anything goes wrong, it's easy to kind of either roll out of it or really kind of pinpoint that this small change made a difference. Right. When people introduce large diff changes that might affect multiple microservices at one time, then it becomes very difficult to understand which one of these 10,000 lines of code that was changed is the actual culprit here. 
Um, and, and, and it causes a lot of downtime and problems for the operations teams and developers. There's also a, you know, a, a, a different advantage to, to this or another advantage to doing this is that there's a psychological component to this, which is for a developer, it feels like you're making progress. The more code stays on your laptop and never touches production, the, the more it feels like all I'm doing is just writing code for the sake of writing code and I never get to see the impact my code has on my customers. Mm. And that's really, really important here uh, for developers because there's, so, there's such a demand for developers that they can go anywhere. Uh, so, so it's not about paying a developers more money uh, because they can get paid well anywhere and it's really more about how productive can you make an engineer or a person or a human being. Mm. And you ask, how does this translate into the greater org? I think it's the exact same way. I mean, you can take this to marketing and sales and uh, in other departments where you know, people come up with really, really great ideas and then they'll say, well, I'm going to spend the next quarter working on this. The thing that the, the problem with that is like, while as much as you and I or anybody on the team could say that's a great idea, the, the, the person who or the customer who's affected by the idea is, is, the, is the true kind of, um, uh, I guess, the person who will tell you whether there's real value in here or not, no matter how much we talk about an idea inside of a company. So here at Armory, what we do is we have a significant number of experiments. We let, um, you know, we let anybody in the company try anything with almost even our culture we experiment with. And what we do is we have a framework for this where we ask them, what is the least amount of things that you have to do to prove that you've moved the metric in one way or another? Hmm. In some cases, the answer might not be writing code. And that's what we find out a lot of times. Like, how do you prove that this idea is valuable at all? may not have to be with writing code. I think so very quickly we jump into, well, we should write a whole bunch of code and write a whole bunch of features, but there, there's nine times out of 10, we can find a quicker path to validate whether our ideas are good ones or not. And so I do believe it affects the entire organization thinking this way. Awesome, awesome. Um, so do you believe that sort of how productive um, your team is, is tied to how engaged they are with like your business and the business problems that you guys are tackling? I would probably reverse that statement, which mm. is the more they are engaged with a business problem, the more they are productive, mm. right? And, and so my team on the engineering side and especially on the product side is we fly engineers to customer sites all the time. Mm. Uh, in fact, uh, we have um, a team of three engineers in New York talking to one of the world's largest banks to help them get onboarded onto our product. Now, we have professional services and customer success people that could do that. But the reason they're there, uh, they're at the customer site, is to understand what is the user pain for them to get a perspective on what it feels like to use the product that they themselves are building. And then right. when you separate people out too far from that pain or that user, you lose touch with that business problem, you lose touch, uh, and, and then you just get back into, well, I'm just a coder. Uh, right. Empowering them and giving them context enables them to solve problems for themselves and have a greater, um, you know, greater sense of autonomy and ownership when they're the ones driving the product roadmap with the product team as well. Um, and ultimately, it makes my life easier because then it's like I don't have to tell 100 people what to do, right? Yeah. They're self-organizing and they're doing uh, what they want to do. They're, they're growing themselves in the sense that they're doing things that they've never done before and a company has never asked them to do before. So they're, they're learning a whole new set of skills on how to communicate, how to gather feedback, how to organize uh, the, their peers to solve this problem. And I think that's uh, super important, especially in this day and age. Mm. Um, what would you say to, let's say, a 20-year-old Isaac? Um, you know, from what you know now, what advice would you give him? Or, you know, this is sort of applies generally to a bunch of young engineers sort of starting their career fresh out of school or not, you know, in their early 20s. Um, how could they sort of get to, how could they maybe find the direction that their career ought to take? And for those who want to become, you know, a technical leader of an organization, how could they sort of accomplish what you've done? Yeah. 
So another really great question. I'd say if there's one advice I'd give to younger me is to be more empathetic. Um, to not so quickly judge others on the decisions they made and that they've made it for a particular reason. And it's important to understand what that reason is and understand where these people are coming from. And I think that goes, whether you want to be an engineering leader or manager or just a really good senior engineer or principal engineer, I think empathy is a thing that we lack in our industry the most because we're so quick to say, you know, well, Isaac made a really bad decision because he's not very good. Right. There's probably more to it. I, the fact may be I may not be very good, but <laughs> it's important to understand how I came to that decision. Was I, was I given wrong information? Was mm. I coming in on a bad day? Or do I consistently make bad decisions? And I think so many times we get into these um, really these heated technical discussions that you, you, know, you can see them on Twitter and the internet. Um, right. And, 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 it's, and it's, it's really kind of unhelpful. It doesn't ever progress the conversation forward. It doesn't make us better as an industry or as people because we're too busy fighting on this technical merits of whether we use containers or VMs or whatever comes out tomorrow. Actually, I guess the argument now is uh, functions versus containers. Right. Versus figuring out how to work better together and how to actually solve the business problem and the engineering problem, which nine times out of 10, whether you use Lambda or a function versus containers or whatever technology comes out next matters a lot less. Right. What, so how do you kind of um, organize and maybe marshal the ambition and this sort of conflict, you know, in your team? Like, do you guys have a governing philosophy um, to your engineering team? You know, I mentioned engineering product, maybe some other departments roll up to you directly, right? Yeah, both engineering and, and product roll up to me directly. So this is, by the way, a lot of this is, is new for us too. Um, and and what, we, what we call is a, a roundabout culture. Mm. And uh, are you familiar with this term? No, I'm not, I'm not. Okay, so uh, you're familiar with stoplights, I, I presume? Yep, yep. Okay, so if you think about a stoplight, it tells you exactly when to stop, when to go, when to slow down. Um, but the problem with the stoplight is, first off, when it's broken, um, it doesn't work at all. Mm. And, when, um, and if somebody doesn't pay attention to the red light, uh, it, you may cause fatalities, right? Mm. Um, and they cost a lot of money, and they really slow things down. But if you think about a roundabout, a roundabout is really simple. It's a circle. Right? There's no electronics involved, and you're, the, the, you yourself are responsible for merging in and out of traffic. And if, when the electricity is out, it, it's just a circle, so it still works. Mm. Uh, and that's not to say that there aren't accidents in a roundabout. There absolutely are. In fact, I myself have gotten in an accident in a roundabout. But um, the accidents it, are, are much smaller, and they're not fatalities, right? You mm. still might need to replace your bumper, but you're alive. Right. Right? And you learn from that, and you iterate from that. So we're moving towards uh, this roundabout culture. Uh, where engineers are empowered to do what they need to do. Um, and it's not easy for everybody because we are asking a lot more than maybe what your last company has asked you to do in that stoplight culture where only product managers can decide what requirements you're going to build for and what pro the priorities are. Right. Um, and instead, the way that we think about it is like, look, you are a, um, you're an individual contributor. You're allowed to build whatever you want to build as long as it doesn't affect, uh, well, if it's going to affect people around you, you need to include them and make sure that you explain to the, the people around you how, how this is going to affect them. The other thing, too, is we believe in, in providing a significant amount of context and information and transparency. Because if I don't give you the information, uh, you're not going to be able to make the right decision. And right. so a lot of what we do is just, is, is just how do we build and invest in systems that surface information in a way that developers can consume so that when they make decisions, they can make the trade-off themselves. And again, uh, it's not just Isaac doing it or the VP of product doing it. It's, it's the ICs themselves saying, well, I evaluated the information. This is the way I want to move forward. And uh, it may cause an accident, but we learn from it. We're very big in, in retros, and we always do retrospectives on, on a lot of decisions, um, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and, and we learn and we grow. Mm. 
I imagine you're pretty opinionated about doing a good retro. What are some characteristics of a really good retro? Ah, yeah, I am very opinionated about this because I've seen them go bad. <laughs> uh, the first part is, which I've seen go poorly, is typically in retros, the most quietest person, the person who has the, the lower voice or maybe not so strong of an opinion gets mm. drowned out and it just gets into a, um, you know, a discussion between the, like, the two most senior people. Right. And, and in many cases, I think that's really, really bad because the people who are most deeply affected are, are typically not those people. Um, so I think it's important to make sure that each person tells you what went well, what went bad, and what we can improve without getting interrupted. Give it a little bit of a time limit. Um, I think it's also important that you don't name names and you're not saying, well, Isaac did a bad job, right? It's, you know, what, what could have been improved? And, you know, it's very hard for people not to uh, kind of disassociate themselves a little bit sometimes when things go wrong. That will happen. Uh, but so that's why it's really, really important for people not to feel bad about themselves when something goes bad, but instead think about how are we going to make the system better? Mm. And then decide on what are those two to three action items that we are going to focus on the next time we do this that we are going to improve. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we're, we do quarterly engineering offsites and product offsites. Mm. I just had a, a team come in. I am driving the agenda, but I'm not the owner of the offsite. I'm mm. just helping facilitate people, and they're coming in with their own ideas. These are ICs deciding how we are going to plan for the next quarter. And the very first thing we did was reviewed the retro from the last quarter and looked at the things to improve. And then they, the team, there was like three or four of them, decided what are the three to four things we're going to include in this offsite that we didn't include in the last, off, the last offsite. And that's how we iteratively improve. And we might miss the mark again, but you know, it's not going to be their fault. It's going to be our fault together because uh, this is something I opened it up to the entire team to decide who, who wanted to participate in this. And these are the three to four individuals that wanted to take ownership on this particular agenda item. Um, and so anybody can participate and anybody can change anything in this organization. And so we all feel this sense of community and tribalness that uh, we all kind of win together and we all fail together. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Um, I want to ask you more about tribes because it seems like you guys do a lot of thinking about that. Uh, but I will ask you this other question first. How do you, um, so how do you think about, let's say, and maybe the horizons are different, but how do you think about balancing short-term, you know, to mid-term revenue requirements versus, you know, maintaining and investing in, let's say, your technology competitive edge, like your technology development. Is that something you guys think about? And if so, how? Yeah, we, we absolutely think about that. And especially because we, um, because we have this open source component, right? Right. Every, right. every hour we spend on open source means that we're giving, we're essentially commoditizing ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And every open source company has to deal with this balance. Right. And, um, you know, you and I were talking about Peter Drucker earlier, and I think it comes back to uh, metrics, right? Uh, I wish it was like some sort of super philosophy thing here, but <laughs> what we ended up doing was really deciding that we asked ourselves this question, which is, at what point do we decide that we go from, you know, building proprietary features versus open source features? And we did uh, a few thought exercises around how fast the community is growing, what percentage of the pie is coming to Armory, right? Because if, if for example, we invest 100% of our resources into open source and we don't create anything on a proprietary standpoint, then we're not going to make any money. And that means right. that we're, not, we're not a real company at that point. Right. Conversely, yeah. we can go the other side and say, we're only going to do proprietary features. Well, then our open source tech community will fall apart. And right. so what we first did was set um, really targets and milestones um, as to uh, how we're going to divide up the engineering resources and to focus on uh, proprietary versus uh, open source and when we kind of flip the switch and when we see things going uh, in one direction or another. And I think right. that could be applied to anything, right? 
if, for example, you have a new feature or product that you're starting to release and there's no users associated with it, it probably doesn't make sense to tackle tech debt, right? It right. probably makes sense to probably keep hacking and trying to understand what, what is the value that I'm driving to my customers. But at some point, there's a trade-off between all the technical debt that you've built up and the, it's slowing you down from moving forward. Um, and being able to measure that is, is, is the most important thing. We also internally measure what are the, the things that engineers are working on internally. Mm -hmm. So every time we create a JIRA ticket, it's a pretty simple labeling system. Is this a feature? Is this tech debt? Is this something else? Uh, and it allows us to do an analysis at the end of the quarter to say, well, we probably invested too much in this particular area. And we've done this before. So, you know, getting back to answering your question is it really all comes down to, to metrics and having alignment on where those metrics should be and what your goals are in order to um, you know, achieve your greater goals with the company. Right, I actually, I saw that you had um, shared an HBR article about like metrics versus strategy. And I actually, I remember, I didn't read the full article, but I remember skimming it like maybe a couple of weeks ago. And um, you remember which one I'm talking about. It's like, you know, having your metrics support your strategy rather than vice versa. And, yep. um, you know, I definitely think that that is a trap that many, you know, software companies fall because we can have so much data, so much operational information about our company at every level of analysis. And I think that in itself becomes a focus rather than thinking about how to improve those KPIs or those metrics. Um, you know, you also, so I noticed you also had a tweet about like technical debt. And I think, I mean, this is like a pretty general question, but um, talk to me maybe a little bit about like your philosophy about managing tech debt and sort of like how that is, you know, a priority or not, you know, um, for you guys sort of at an organizational level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it, the, the first thing is there's the, you know, separating out two things. There's how I feel about tech debt and <laughs> how the engineers feel about tech debt. That's yeah, fair. Right. And I think so many times the, the problem happens that, you know, I'm, an, I'm under a lot of pressure to push out new features. And right. I, I am not the one dealing with the tech debt, right? So, of course, my perspective is more features, more features, more features. Now, they, the engineers who actually work on it day to day, are the ones who have to deal with the, the pains and the hurdles of getting code out the door right. uh, to actually deliver on, the, on these promises that we all made. And so, there, so generally the way that I ask the teams to, to think about this is to come up with, again, metrics and measurements that explain to me how they are feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and have them rationalize, right? Why they should work on something on, on tackling tech debt versus, um, you know, tackling tech debt versus doing anything else. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's not, you know, I, it's not, uh, I shouldn't say I'm the one saying like, hey, prioritize features. It's more of, Let's can you know explain this further. Let's dig into this. You know because look, I've been an engineer. I know how painful it is to deal with tech debt, especially when it doesn't get prioritized. Right. Um, so I can I can still kind of sympathize with that. Uh, just kind of getting back to when I was a coder. Uh, but I think it is important for engineers to explain what the business value is of any activity, not just tackling tech debt. Right. That's powerful. I mean, we turned off video, but I would be, you can see me nodding. I totally get it. Um, so, okay. So uh, I imagine you still like to program, but like when was the last time you did and um, you know, do you still do it like for Armory? Yeah, actually uh, about two weeks ago. Um, what know? was it? Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. I said uh, about two weeks ago. Um, actually, this is a great story that ties everything that uh, we've been talking together really with. Sweet. Yeah, so about two weeks ago, I went to go see a, a very large customer of ours um, to really, one, help close the deal, but two, uh, also uh, just get kind of product requirements. I pulled together uh, two product engineers with me to come and just listen and, 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 and talk to them. 
And uh, we started talking and about halfway through, they really opened up like everybody. And it became a very highly collaborative session where the engineer, like the engineers that I brought were asking them about their pains and problems and how to solve for them and why they were having them and really getting into the process of how this company was delivering software and um, how, you know, how we can help them improve. And through that, we actually came up with a, a kind of a, a whiteboarding uh, kind of prototype. And then the next day, we took that prototype, went back to uh, one of the engineers' uh, uh, houses, and we, we actually coded it together. That was a part of that. Uh, I don't know how productive I was, but, uh, <laughs> but we coded everything together, and we came up with a prototype at the end of the day. We, we recorded it and delivered that back to this very large customer that said we had nailed it, right? And that awesome. is like... It's just a beautiful, um, you know, uh, situation where everything just came together. Like we were there to push sales forward. We we got product requirements. We came up with an idea that they found value in. We coded it together. It was very quick, and we delivered value very quickly. And I mean, obviously, this isn't in production, but you know, nothing would really stop us from getting there. That would be the next step. Um, so, um, and we did that in a very short order. So that was probably the last time I, I coded. I don't know if that code will ever reach production. They'll probably change all of my. <laughs> I personally felt like even for me, I felt valuable. I felt valuable yep. being a manager and a leader. Like I felt like I was contributing something. Uh, totally. Even for me. So yeah, leading from the front lines. You know, yeah, that's powerful. Like a Marcus Aurelius rather than you know somebody else. So awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's see. If so, for any new hire to Armory, um, what are two books that you would like? You know, any prospective hire for your company to have read books or blog posts, anything like that, two pieces of sort of structured information that you would want your team to know. Oh yeah, sure. Um, and I'll, I'll, this one's an easy one because these, this is like, I actually give these two books to every engineer that comes into the company. So awesome. the, the first one is Accelerate by Nicole Forsgren, Jez, Hus Jez Humble, and I forgot the last name, which I'm surprised. Um, <laughs> I'm going to put on, oh, uh, Gene Kim, and cool. uh, which of course Gene Kim also wrote the Phoenix Project. Cool. And that I think provides two powerful contexts for any engineer coming into Armory. And I think really en any engineer coming to any other organization, which it really is about um, how, do you, from an engineering perspective, how do you empower an organization to move faster and measure productivity? That is mm -hmm. really, really hard to do. I think most CIOs and CTOs in any organization say they want to be innovative and, and, uh, and want to move faster, but they don't really measure it or know what that means. And this book gives you a really good framework based on science and statistics. Um, and Nicole and Jez and Jean are really the leaders in this space. They actually just got acquired by Google, so now they do all of Google DevOps research for them. Awesome. And, yeah, and it's a, it's a fabulous book. Um, it's, um, it's a little bit dry, I'd say, because it's, it's mostly like stats, but it is, is amazing. If you want to read a more story- uh, telling book. It's a fictional book, but the concepts are the same. And Gene Kim wrote a book called The Phoenix Project, which is a great right. book. Uh, that's just a good casual read, um, but it's both, both are great. And then the other book that I have engineers read uh, is called The Lean Startup. Uh, are you familiar with that book? Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, and, and that book gets actually back to the question you were talking about shipping small diffs and not just about code, but really having experiments and trying out things that are really kind of small in nature, but can impact the direction of your organization and, and you kind of build and iterate on top of that. So those two things, those two books are the books I have everybody read and I give them to them uh, on day one when they join Armory. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much here. Uh, thank you very much, Isaac. 
um, for your time. You know, you're a very busy gentleman, so much appreciated. Of course, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch. And we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.